Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. When people talk about bluegrass music, they'll usually talk about how great the banjo player is or the mandolin player or the guitar player, but nobody ever talks about the bass player. What they don't realize is that the bass player is the glue that holds everything together. He may be the most important member of the band. That's a big role to fill, and if you're not feeling up to the task, the Bluegrass Bass Complete Learning System will get you there. Everything you need in one place to make sure your band doesn't fall apart. Click the link in the show notes to get the full details and take 20% off. Act quick though, this offer won't be around forever. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. Thank you, Jared, for that wonderful announcement. And to all of you would-be bass players, take advantage of that discount, that generous discount, and you will find the coupon code and the information in the show notes for this episode, which you know where to find them. They're right there in the little description if you're on Apple Podcasts, or you can go over to grasstalkradio.com. Scroll down to this episode, click the title of the episode, and you will find the information there. And of course, that is a place where you can listen to all past episodes, if you should be so inclined and have nothing to do for the next year. Today, we're going to talk about something called the Bluegrass Way of Life. But before I get into that, I want to just tell you a little bit about what's been going on around here. It's been... um, It's been on and off warm or frosty. It's either frosty or warm. And right now it happens to be kind of warm out there. And uh, this is the time of year that I get my seeds started. You know, all those saved seeds from last year for your gardening aficionados. Uh, It's it's a good um, thing to learn how to save seeds. And it's simple to begin with something like peppers or tomatoes or squash. Those are fairly simple procedures because you know your seeds don't last forever. Some last a pretty good long time and some don't. So it's good that you reserve a few of your plants each year for the purposes of seed so that you can propagate the following year. Now of course some things are not propagated best by seeds such as potatoes And of course, I have a stash of potatoes that are reserved for planting, and they're going to get planted here very, very shortly. Both the white potatoes and the sweet potatoes, the sweet potatoes won't go out until all danger of frost is over. But I can't sit around waiting, you see. I have to start my sweet potato plants. So I've got uh, sweet potatoes. Uh, rooting in mason jars uh, half full of water uh, sitting in my windowsill they're so pretty sitting there and they're developing quite massive um, arrays of roots Um, not seeing any sprouting of the plant yet but it'll happen so been busy doing that trying to get all the uh, seeds going and I I messed up I I left a tray of just sprouted seeds I forgot to put them in, and it dropped down to 28, and I thought I killed them, and uh, I got lucky. I brought them in the house and put them in a sunny window, and they survived. I'm not sure how they did that, but anyway, if you're into gardening, don't sit around waiting. 
go get you some seeds right now and get started. You always have to be planting seeds for the future, whether it be gardening or bluegrass. All right, uh, next thing. What else have I been doing? You know, it's just, I'm not too um, excited about, you know, like, well, I don't watch TV and I don't listen to the news and things like that. I keep track of what's going on. But I always, my, my thing for the last, oh, I don't know, seven or eight years is if something really, really, really important is happening, somebody will probably tell me. Like my neighbor will come running over with his hair on fire and tell me. Or Darlene will wake me up in the middle of the night and tell me. You know, it's like I really don't need to follow the the day-to-day -day thing because it just consumes too much of your uh, too much of your spirit, you might say. So I just, you know, I try to do other things. It doesn't mean I'm not um, that I'm ignoring everything. That is not. I'm not doing that. But I pretty much have a pretty good idea of what's happening here. So I, I've been doing some other things, and one of the things I did, and you will say, well, this has nothing to do with bluegrass, and you're you're pretty much correct in that, but I may have mentioned um, that I am also an amateur radio operator. I've been a licensed ham radio operator since I think 1987 or 88. Got into it back then, got really into it, just like everything that I take a notion to I become interested in, like the flint napping thing or the bluegrass thing. And I just want to know everything about it. And I want to learn everything about it. And I want to do everything you can do and all that kind of stuff. Got really, really into it back in those days. And there's a thing called the sunspot cycle. And that is, oh, I hear the geese going over. I don't know if you could hear them. There's about 25 Canada geese that fly over back and forth from one pond to another. And there's something to watch, man. What good flyers. And they're so organized, too. Anyway, back to the ham radio thing. The sunspot cycle goes on an 11-year cycle. So you, you have periods of high sunspot activity. And therefore, very good worldwide radio propagation characteristics. And then you have these troughs where there are no sunspots and very few sunspots. So... You can listen and call CQ for days on end and nobody answers. It's, it's sort of like in the bluegrass world, you know, you have the typically the spring, summer, fall bluegrass season. And then in the winter, nothing, nothing. It's sort of like it's got its own cycle. Of course, cycle sort of messed up here um, in 2020. We pretty much had a low bluegrass cycle for the entire year. Anyway, with luck, that will change. And with determination, it's going to require some determination on your part. You know, if you, if you want something, you're going to have to make it happen. Anyway, back to ham radio. Um, and if, in a weird way, this is, I'm going to talk about this in a bit, about this so-called bluegrass way of life. And uh, this ham radio thing is, is similar because... Which you, and I'll, I'll talk about it more in a bit when I get to when I turn the page on my notes to the bluegrass way of life. But there's a whole lot of people that are really, really, really interested in amateur radio all over the world, and you could say the exact same thing about bluegrass music. 
You could say the same thing about collecting Beanie Babies or um, carving duck decoys or, you know, for every interest, there is a bunch of people all over the world who are really, really into that thing. Well, ham radio is one of those things. And uh, they had a little thing this past weekend, uh, a little event on amateur radio called the North American QSO Party. And QSO simply means a conversation or a contact with another ham. So if I talk to you on the ham radio, we just had a QSO, a QSO. And those are old telegraphy abbreviations to shorten your messages so that you could, if you're sending messages in Morse code, you could um, pack more into your message quicker if you use certain abbreviations. Same thing the cops do when they say, I got a 1041. You know, 1041 is quicker than saying, you know, I have a, a rabid dog on the loose or whatever it might be. I, I, I don't know those police 10 codes. And there are multiple versions of them. But QSO simply means a contact with another amateur somewhere, another amateur radio operator. So they had this thing called the North American QSO Party. And here's basically how it goes down. Anybody, any amateur radio operator that wants to participate uh, gets on the air at the starting time. And this, this one ran for 12 solid hours. So for a 12-hour period, some of them run 24, some of these contests and things. But basically, you get all your stuff ready, and you, you test out your gear, and you make sure you're ready, and you watch the clock. And when that clock ticks over to 0600 on, uh, on the proper day, you start spinning that dial looking for people calling CQNA, CQNA QSO party. You're just listening for other people uh, who are participating in the QSO party. And it, it's, it's fun because you can go sometimes days on end and not make a QSO. You know, you hear a lot of people talking, but you don't want to break in. They're having this long rag chew. You know, there's these three guys and they're just talking about antennas and they're going on and on and on. It's kind of like you walk around a bluegrass festival and there's these, there's these three or four dudes that are just sitting there yakking and talking and they all got a instrument in their lap but nobody's picking and you're coming around looking for somebody to pick with you know it's kind of like that on the ham radio a lot of times people are engaged in these long rag chews and you just don't have an opportunity to butt in but these uh these little contests and cuso parties are not like that it's the the essential idea is see how many contacts you can rack up within the period of time so this particular one ran 12 hours and I decided, you know what? I don't have anything else to do. There's no gigs. I have no grass to cut. The critters are all fed. You know, there's really nothing to do. And I thought, well, I'll just do this North American QSO party and see how many contacts I can rack up. And you basically can do two things. You can call CQ, which means you're going to camp out on a certain frequency and you're going to put out a call and then hope other people answer you. And so you're working these pileups. You know, you get you're one guy hanging out on a frequency and you're calling. And, you know, one after another after another will be tuning around and find you calling and then call you. And then you you transfer the required information back and forth 
and then he'll move on to the next. So the real serious um, QSO party or contesters do it that way. But the more casual people like me just continuously tune around the dial listening for people like that and then get in the pile up. And there'll be, you know, sometimes eight or 10 people calling this person at once. And so, you know, you may have to stick around a few minutes to try to eventually work the guy. But anyway, I just thought I'd tell you about that because, the, you know, the, these, this thing about having a shared interest is what, you know, binds people together. And, you know, throughout this entire North American CUSO party, I heard not one word about politics, not one word about any kind of social issues, N nothing, religious, nothing, nothing. It's just ham radio. They do it because they love ham radio. And, and that's uh, when I get to the bluegrass way of life. Um, that's one of the things that I love about the bluegrass way of life is that the same thing applies there. But I'll get back to that. Let me just quickly tell you about the QSO party. So I'm just, you know, I just worked 40 meters only. For any of you who might be a ham, I was on 40 meters, which is 7.1 megahertz. I just worked in that band because that was the only antenna I had really working good that day. And uh, just wanted to rattle off, you know, just sitting here, just sitting in this very chair where I do this podcast, there's my ham rig and my antenna tuner and my CW gear and extra microphones and SWR meters and an old radio and power supplies and all this stuff is here. And a lot of my students, because I teach in this same rat hole, you know, they, they look at that stuff and go, what is that? What is all that stuff? You know, this stack of gear, you know, and I would explain and turn the radio on and show them this and that, you know. Anyway, so I worked, uh, I was just casually working them, and I, it's just interesting. I could just sit here in this chair, you know, even with all the high-tech internet, and, you know, I could text somebody in China or something, you know. It, people don't seem to be mystified by technology anymore. But, see, I'm sitting out here thinking, okay, it's me with a 12-volt power supply and a radio and a microphone and an antenna stuck in the ground. And I, here I am talking to this guy in Indiana. No wires. No wires. That's almost like magic to me. To think that my voice is somehow turning into electromagnetic waves and going all the way to Indiana. So I talked to Joe in Indiana, Ron in Tennessee, Bruce in Ohio, Larry in Minnesota, Mary up in North Dakota, Tino down in Dominican Republic, Jeff in Colorado, Paul in California, Bob in Massachusetts, Rob in Manitoba, Canada, Ken in Colorado, Tom in Minnesota, Tom in Connecticut, Fred in Arizona, Lee in New Hampshire, I needed New Hampshire on 40, Bill in Colorado, David in Massachusetts, Ted in New York, Pat in Montana, and that guy was going so fast. I mean, I think I, I mean, we did exchange our information, and in this particular QSO party, you have to get their first name. You give them your first name, and you give them your state or country. So they just, all they need to successfully get was Brad in Georgia. If they got that, and then you move on. Anyway, Pat in Montana, he was really racking them up. He probably won the contest. Uh, Ira in Nevada, one of these might be one of you. One of you might be one of these people. 
And, you know, it just didn't come up. You know what I'm saying? One of these people, surely one of these people must be into bluegrass and maybe a listener. So also uh, worked uh, John in California, Ken in California, Mike in Iowa, Tom in Nevada, Don in California, Don in Ontario, Kurt in South Dakota, Steve in New Mexico, Ken down in Puerto Rico, Mike in Colorado, and there's no duplicates in here because you get points taken away if you work the same guy twice. Uh, anyway, Ed in California, Bob in New Jersey, Les in Texas, Rich in Minnesota, John in Pennsylvania, Tom in Maryland, Ken in Vermont, Larry in Massachusetts, and it, the list goes on. I'll just stop there. But it's fun. It's fun. I don't know why it's fun, but it is fun. And uh, anyway, did that for 12 solid hours. They do require you in that particular event to uh, take a 30-minute break. They require it. You have to have a 30-minute gap somewhere in your log. Anyway, I don't ever submit my scores because I know they're so pathetically low. <laughs> you know, probably the winner of something like this probably has two, 3,000 contacts. And, you know, I make like 50, you know. Anyway, something fun to do. But, uh, you know, the, the comparison, I'll, I'll get into that in a bit when I talk about the bluegrass way of life. But I just want to give you a little peek inside the window of the ham radio way of life. All right. Next thing I want to do is in a recent episode, we heard Heather and we heard me talking to Heather. And uh, I got uh, quite a few emails in response to that episode um, one in particular uh, from a guy who said, I, I just couldn't understand why you were, why were you spending so much time explaining how to attach a strap and over your left shoulder to your right hip and my, and, and he, he said to me, he's like, couldn't they just watch the video? And then, you know, it, it was midpoint in the discussion that it became clear that, uh, Heather couldn't watch the videos. And he was like, ah, smack his forehead, duh, like, uh, you know, like a Homer Simpson moment. He's like, now I get it. I get it. Anyway, um, I just want to read to you the response that I got from Heather. And, you know, she said it was perfectly fine with her to put that out on the podcast. And I hope it was helpful, to, helpful, interesting, educational, perhaps entertaining <laughs> to uh, many of you listeners. But, um, uh, after the fact, she wrote me. So I just thought I'd let you know what she said. And I'm going to skip skip a few things in here. I'm going to get to the crux of it. It's uh, This is from Heather. Good evening. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I have implemented your suggestions and have found all of them extremely helpful. I moved the neck strap and held the mandolin like you explained in your audio. And I honestly feel like my playing has drastically improved just by doing those simple adjustments. Playing feels much more relaxed now, and I think that has also helped my left hand be able to move up, I'm sorry, be able to be more flexible on the fretboard. I'm also improving on my pick strokes, so the exercise you suggested has helped me tremendously. Also, I listen to your podcast and will be listening to previous episodes as time permits. Uh, you helped me so much with your feedback. Thank you, Heather. And thank you, Heather, for, you know, sharing that um, 
what, what do I call that thing? I'm trying to remember. Oh, personal feedback solution transaction with the other listeners. I really appreciate you allowing me to do that. And just a little reminder, if anybody else wants the same treatment, uh, just go to my website and uh, look around on the mandolin page because I don't think I mention it other places. You'll have to, if you're a banjo player, I'll, I'll do the same thing. But over there in the mandolin lessons area, you will find my personal feedback solution or you can go into the store part over at payhip.com slash Bradley Laird and just look through that massive stuff there and you will find the personal feedback solution you can do the same thing i'm happy to devote an hour of my life to uh sharing what i might know and what might help you so enough about that oh oh there is one more thing the little exercise that i described in that podcast i have written out in tablature for mandolin and standard notation um so that you can have it too, because it's a simple little thing. It's what I call the string changing exercise. And it's very useful for anyone who plays guitar or mandolin, because it's essentially a flat picking exercise. And so those, those eight little versions of that thing, where you're going down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up, and you switch strings, I've tabbed all that out. And even a guitar player can read that mandolin tab because it's just open strings and you're just going back and forth. I could have written it with, you know, a two-line staff. But any flat picker that's trying to improve their pick control might, you know, want that little exercise. So it's available for free. You don't have to do anything. You don't even have to support me on Patreon. But I'm sticking it up on the Patreon, on my Patreon page. So if you want that thing, just go over there and get it. Um, it's going to, to find it, go to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. And if you get right on it, it's probably the most recent post. And just putting that out there for those of you who maybe didn't understand it by hearing me describe it. You know, if you look at it, maybe it'll make more sense. But the gist of the thing is that there is a difference in pick motion when you're doing those down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up on a single string, your pick is moving a certain direct uh, up distance. It's swinging back and forth in a, in a certain distance. And then when you switch strings, the pick must move farther because you got to reach over and catch the other string. And that there is a difference between playing, let's say, down on the fourth string and up on the third. That is a longer distance you must move that pick than if you play up on the fourth and then down on the third. And all this will be explained if you just look at the tab and do them. Okay, so just wanted to mention that for any of you who want that good little exercise that will supercharge your right hand. Um, just go over there to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird, and you will find it there for free. All right, let's talk about the bluegrass way of life. And I was hinting around at it. You know, there's a bluegrass way of life. There is a um, racing um, uh, sports cars way of life. Like if you were in the SCCA and you raced little sports cars, there's a 
SECA way of life. Or if you're a Flint Napper, there's a Flint Napper way of life. And, you know, it's like any interest that you may have, there is a group of people that are really into that thing. And that there is that way of life. You know, you get in there and you, 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 you go with the flow and you get into that thing. Well, that's bluegrass. Bluegrass is one of those things. T to think of bluegrass as only a music is a mistake. While it is a music, it's a lot more than a music. And I think we know that from the experience we had in 2020. We, aside from recorded music, we didn't really have the bluegrass way of life in 2020. Not the way it normally goes down. And certainly in a greatly reduced um, quantity. You know, how many bluegrass festivals did you attend in 2020? Well, probably none. Same for me. How many gigs did you play? How many jam sessions did you go to? But the bluegrass way of life actually continued on. Yesterday, I talked to two people on the telephone. Only two. Both of them were former members of the Pony Express. Buddy Ashmore and Mike Estes, guitar player and fiddle player. Two guys. We didn't pick together, but we talked to each other. And, of course, we talked about, oh, I wish we'd get some picking going and we ought to, we ought to ride down there and, you know, all this stuff. And, well, I sure hope these festivals, you know, talking bluegrass, still living the bluegrass way of life. But the thing I want to point out is that there's more to it than the music. I've talked about this and touched on it before, about the friendships and the relationships and the, all these things. They're as much a part of it as the music. And sometimes people get into it and they think it's all about the music. And they go wrong. It's not all about the music. The music is the, the, the glue that binds everyone together. But it's not really the point. I mean, it, it, it is the point, but it's not. Because if you think only about the music, you know, there are some musicians that I have run across who are completely 100% into the music and they don't care a thing about any of the other parts of the bluegrass community or way of life. And uh, generally they're not very well liked. They may be well respected for their abilities, but they're not generally well liked, you know? So well, you might wonder what got me thinking about the bluegrass way of life aside from, you know, I've lived it for the last 40 some years is that I was digging around through boxes of old stuff, trying to straighten up and organize. And I found a box of just a huge stack of SEBA breakdowns. And that would be the Southeastern Bluegrass Association monthly newsletter, which originally was a quarterly newsletter, and which originally, when it was quarterly, I printed. <laughs> Back in 1984, I was on the publication staff and... I've told, talked about that before, but I just, one popped out and it was thicker than the rest. And it said special collector's edition, October, 2004. <clears throat> and on the cover, 
It said, SEBA, 1984 to 2004, celebrating 20 years of promoting the bluegrass way of life. And I looked through it and, you know, I, I had an ad. There was, I had a classified ad in there for, you know, for those of you wanting lessons in banjo and mandolin. Let me see if I can find that here. Oh, here we go. Page 14. Lessons. Brad Laird of Cedar Hill and Pony Express is accepting students wishing to learn bluegrass mandolin, guitar, banjo, and upright bass. Learn tab, standard notation, music theory, 25 years experience, and my phone number, which is not my number anymore. Only had 25 years experience in 2004. <laughs> I got a little bit more now. <clears throat> I think I found my name like six times in, the, in this thing. Anyway, I was just, I read through that thing just, you know, for old time's sake or whatever. And uh, it sat there beside my chair and I was, I kept looking at that. The bluegrass way of life. Bluegrass way of life. What is the bluegrass way of life? And so I jotted down a few notes and I thought I would just tell you some of the thoughts that bubbled up to the top of my mind. What is the bluegrass way of life? And, and the first thing that I thought is that the bluegrass way of life is if, if done properly, I'm not talking about playing music here, I mean, a little bit, but that the skills acquired in participating in the bluegrass way of life can be applied to your entire life. The same uh, activities and theories and a attitudes and things like that, they, they can apply across the board in your life. So here's my little list in no particular order, just things I thought, what, what is this bluegrass way of life? And the first thing I thought of was that bluegrassers, that would be people who participate in the bluegrass way of life, that they're bound together by common ideals. Now, they may not all have the same ideas, but they have the same ideals. And it is regardless of their viewpoints on a multitude of other subjects. In other words, when some guy comes strolling up to your jam session and sits down, and starts playing banjo with you or something, you don't stop and say, now, wait a minute, Buster, what church do you attend? And you wouldn't say, we only allow Southern Baptists in this jam session. Even if every other member of that jam session is a dyed-in-the-wool, Bible-thumping Southern Baptist, and this guy is a Methodist or a Lutheran, or Catholic, or whatever. It never comes up. We just, we don't worry about that. Because that's not what we're here for. We're here to play bluegrass music and do the bluegrass way of life. And the bluegrass way of life says, we don't really care about that. I mean, we care about it, but we don't care about it here. You know what I'm saying? So that's the first thing. That we're bound together by a love of bluegrass music a love of the instruments, a love of learning, 
a love of performing, and a love of hanging out together and having fun together. The second thing that you will find within the bluegrass way of life is there is a work ethic. You can't be a lazy, shiftless bum and really fully participate in the bluegrass way, the bluegrass way of life. Because let's say you want to play an instrument. Well, if you're too lazy to practice or take the initiative to take lessons or all those things, you're not really going to fully participate as a bluegrass player in the bluegrass way of life. So you have to have some work ethic. You have to be able to plan and do your homework and, you know, put in the time necessary in order to be able to participate. It's not like you're walking through a carnival and they got this thing where you throw darts at balloons and any fool can go up there and give the guy a dollar, pick up the darts and toss a few darts. You can't do that in bluegrass. You can't just grab some schmo off the street and hand him a banjo and say, come on, let's pick. Because he don't know what to do. He don't know how to do it. He hasn't put in the work. So there's a work ethic. And when you have demonstrated that you have applied yourself to the task, then you're more accepted. You've proven yourself, you know. Now, that doesn't mean that beginners are not welcome. They are. But they're also expected to do the work. I mean, if you can't change chords on your guitar fast enough, deftly enough to keep up with, uh, oh, I don't know, any bluegrass song, <laughs> uh, you're not, you need to go home and put in some more work. So there's a work ethic. Next thing on my list, bluegrass, the bluegrass way of life, is full of creativity because everybody doesn't do it the same way. And I'm not talking just about the music. I'm talking about the, the style of camping that you do at a festival. Maybe you're that guy who's got that half a million dollar bus motorhome thing. Or maybe you're the guy that, like me, that converted a four by six little utility trailer into uh, the poor man's um, teardrop camper. And the teardrops are real. Um, it's creativity. Creativity and how you, what your instrument is. And, you know, there's so many things. You know, like, what are you into? Are you into learning Don Reno stuff? Are you into learning Tony Trishka stuff? You know, and how do you apply that when you step in there to play with others? That's a lot of creativity. But the cool thing about the creativity in the bluegrass way of life is that it is tempered with a respect for form and history. If you don't have respect for the form and for the history, you're not going to really be fully engaged in the bluegrass way of life. It, I, I gave the example one time of, of writing a sonnet. If you're going to write a sonnet and you're going to call it a sonnet, it should be a sonnet. Now, I don't care what you write about. I don't care 
the the subject matter, the choice of words, the the whatever. But you don't call it a sonnet for crying out loud if it's not a sonnet, you know. Like if you got one of these stream of consciousness, uh, you know, jam poets, like you know, just doing this thing, and there's no rhymes, there's no meter, there's no n nothing. And then he calls it a sonnet. I'd be like, that's a sonnet? What are you, crazy? You know, so there is a respect within the bluegrass way for form. And it's the bluegrass form. Established, it's a little flexible. You know, you could have a dobro or maybe not. But uh, the form just, for the most part, says, nah, saxophone's not really part of it. You know, because it's not really bluegrass. I mean, it might be cool, but just call it something else and then go start your uh, sax grass way of life and, you know, try to gain followers all around the world. And hey, more power to you. I'm not I'm not against um, altering the form, but just don't call it bluegrass. You know, <laughs> I had this conversation uh, recently by email with a a Russian pianist who uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to save this, the, the full tale for another episode, but uh, just back and forth with him a little bit about his music and stuff. And uh, I told him in my email that one time I was, I picked up the Atlanta journal constitution, which by the way, uh, around Atlanta, a lot of people call the Atlanta urinal and constipation. That was an old newspaper joke. My father would say a lot. Anyway, I'm picking it up, and they were having this big uh, uh, shindig down in, I don't know, Atlanta, Piedmont Park, some music festival type thing, and Bela Fleck was scheduled to appear, and Bela Fleck and the Flecktones, and they had a, you know, like a section of the paper talking about this festival, I don't remember what, Midtown Music or something, and I see this headline that says, Bela Fleck, bluegrass star to appear. Something like that. Or Bela Fleck to bring bluegrass to Midtown. or Something like that. I was like, what? I, I, I you know, I, I've got, I think, three or four Bela Fleck and the Flecktone CDs. I bought them. I listened to them. I love them. I think they're cool. I've seen Bela Fleck and the Flecktones perform up at... Uh, Merle Fest and somewhere else. I like their music, but it ain't bluegrass. I mean, come on. Just because the guy's got a banjo doesn't make it bluegrass. Anyway, I was telling this uh, Russian pianist, Andre, uh, this. I said, you know, I saw that headline and I wrote a letter to the editor, expecting it just to be thrown in the trash. And I, you know, dear music editor, I can't remember the guy's name. He used to come out sometimes to our shows at the freight room. Can't remember the guy's name. Anyway, dear so and so, I I I'm somewhat disappointed <laughs> that you described Bela Fleck and the Flecktones as bluegrass, and I would just like to point out that while Bela Fleck is perfectly capable of playing bluegrass music and has in fact performed as a bluegrass musician and has recorded bluegrass music. Bela Fleck and the Flecktones is not bluegrass, et cetera, et cetera. Sincerely, Brad Laird. And the amazing thing was they printed it. 
they printed it. I wish I had saved a copy. I did not. If any of you have a copy of that uh, or have access to the Urinal and Constipation Archives, uh, find me a copy of that and send it to me. I was just pointing out, you know, a little minor correction. Uh, good music, not bluegrass. Okay. So that's part of what I'm talking about, that it's the bluegrass way of life is full of creativity, but it's tempered with respect for form and history. Okay. The next thing about the bluegrass way of life, it's not a solo effort. It is, it is a cooperative experience. And by the way, I'm not talking about just the musicians. I'm talking about the fans too. Plenty of bluegrass fans who don't play. Plenty that do. And in bluegrass organizations, you have the people who barely play or don't play, but who come and man the tables and cook the hamburgers and produce the newsletter. And, 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 and there are people that love bluegrass that are participating in bluegrass, the bluegrass way of life that not, are not necessarily players. It is, of course, mostly populated with people who play. But all these people work together to make the bluegrass way of life happen. It's not just the musicians and certainly not just the great musicians that make it all happen. It's a whole lot of people you've never heard of that make it happen. And that's a very cool thing. And that is true in so many parts of our world. It is a cooperative effort. And everybody in that cooperative effort is working for the same purpose bound by the common ideals of a love for the music and a love and acceptance of their fellow people who believe the same things. Another thing you see in the bluegrass way of life is leadership. There are leaders and there are followers. You do see leadership. Certainly Bill Monroe is an example. Charlie Waller, Del McCurry, Doyle Lawson, these people lead their bands. The boss men, you know? And there are leaders within organizations and within uh, festival organizers and record companies and, 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 and. Somebody's got to take the bull by the horns and try to round everybody up and get them all pointed in the same direction. I've been involved in bluegrass groups and organizations and event planning, or just let's just take, for example, being in a band. Whether it, you may not know it, there almost always is a leader. Even though they may vote on things and they may decide things as a group, there's still somebody driving that bus, generally speaking. And in Cedar Hill, it was Jimmy Atkins. He started it. He's still got it going. I think 45 years now. And so as I participated in that for 26 and a half years, 27 years, that was acknowledged. And that what we had was a leader who drove the bus, you might say. I don't mean literally. I mean guided the band forward in his vision. But that band was very democratic in that, you know, if a bunch of the guys in the group didn't really want to do that song, we didn't do it. So it wasn't, 
it wasn't an employer-employee relationship. It was more of a democratic band. Go back and listen to Monarchy versus Democracy, one of my early episodes. But there was still leadership. Now, in the band Pony Express, it operated pretty much the exact same way, except in that case, I was the leader of it. There would have never been a Pony Express gig if I didn't steer the band in that direction. There would have never been a record if I didn't steer the band in that direction. And that's okay. It doesn't mean I was the boss. It meant I was, I was trying to guide and mold the rest of the people in a certain direction, and they didn't have to go along with it. If they, they could always quit, I mean, that would be the worst case scenario. Or they could object or offer compromises and things like that. In other words, there's this cooperative effort but there's always a, a touch of leadership. If you have no leadership whatsoever, you're probably just going to not get very far. You know? I mean, think about that herd of sheep. And, and flock of sheep, sorry. Sorry to you sheep herders. Flock of sheep. And I've seen it with chickens. You see it, the, the pecking order. You know, the, the rooster is clearly the leader of my flock of chickens. And without the leadership, they wander. They just wander everywhere. A hawk can be sitting up in the tree screaming and they'll just be like pecking around under it, like, what? But the, with a rooster, they don't do that. And in the case of, of um, domestic sheep, and I'm not very experienced with domestic sheep, but you know, I've read some books on, on sheep dogs and sheep herding and things like that just because I think it's interesting. Uh, there's a thing called the Judas goat. And the goat hangs out, you know, it gets a little special treatment and special training. And uh, when it comes time to round the sheep up and put them on the truck and send them off to the mutton factory, you have your Judas goat. And he goes in and be becomes the leader for this flock. And he leads them onto the truck. And then you pull him off and you send the flock off to whatever, to their destiny. Well, that's an example of leadership. You can follow a false leader or you can follow a leader who has the interests of the whole flock at heart. And that's the sort of leadership that succeeds in the bluegrass way. If you have a leader who is only interested in his own welfare, it's not going to end very well for the for the members of the flock but if you have an, an what they used to call a benevolent dictator or a benevolent king um you'll you'll do better because he actually cares about the flock you know you know back in the day when the king led the charge you know he led the army uh th that type of leader uh, as opposed to the one that leads from behind you know up on the hill with a field glasses. So we have that in bluegrass. We have leadership. We also have um, a thing that is so uh, underrated, and that is called the division of labor. And that is you're good at one thing and I'm good at another and you're good at another thing and you're good at another thing. So why not, why not we combine all those things together and that'll make our operation better. And I'm just going to use the example of a band, but this could apply to 
planning an event or planning a festival or, or operating a bluegrass club or anything. And it, it applies to practice, you know, running a business. I mean, running a coffee shop, I, I don't care what it is, but it's, it's in the bluegrass way of life, successful bands, organizations, festivals, et cetera, et cetera have a division of labor. That is, you put your people who are most talented in certain areas, put them to work on the areas that they excel at, and then let the other people who excel at these things work on those things, and you put it all together, and you got just like even as simple as what instrument. You know, like Mike's a far better fiddle player than I would ever dream of being, so it would be stupid to put me on the fiddle and him on the mandolin. I mean, it'd just be stupid. Or, we're all going to play the fiddle. Well, mate, no. how about everybody do what they're best at, you know? And we have that in Bluegrass. In Cedar Hill, in particular, is a great example because the for many years, the, the members, it was primarily Jimmy on banjo, me on mandolin, Bob on guitar, Fred on bass, and we had uh, several different fiddle players over the years. And right now, it's David Ellis. It was Jeff Johnson, and it was Pete Lussier. Uh, but part of being a member of that band was we got to find a role for you. We got to, you know, what, what are you, you know, what's your thing? How can you help this thing work best? And it was organized for the large majority of my time with Cedar Hill. Is that Duck did the booking? He was the contact at gigs. He was the contact. Before the gig, he was the contact. He was the face of Cedar Hill. He was the he was our own in-house agent. And he typically, for the most part, wrote the set list. So that was his role in Cedar Hill. My role was promotions. Anything printed. Uh, you know, the fixing up like a sign or a banner or a, you know, it didn't mean that, you know, at different times, other people didn't participate in these things. But generally speaking, you know, I was the one who designed the business card and ran the website and made the postcards and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Bob was the PA dude. The PA, you know. Operated it at the gigs, maintained it during in between. That was his uh that was the division of labor that fell in his lap. And Fred was what I called the maintenance guy. Anything broken. Well, except instruments. Bob did the broken instruments thing. But, you know, you get, you, your 150-foot power cable, you know, the end is shortened out. Fred fixed it, you know. And these same things happened when we arrived at a gig. You know, Duck's job we all had the job of playing our playing our instruments and singing and we all helped with the you know the setup everybody had their job you know bob setting up the amps and so on fred setting up the speakers i'm setting up the mics and mic cables and duck is off trying to find the client and talk to them you know and work out our you know the set schedule and other you know that kind of stuff division of labor same thing when we packed up you know, instantly at the end of every gig, I start unplugging all the wires, packing up the mics, 
and rolling all the mic cables up onto a big reel. And by the time I was finished with that, Fred had disconnected the speakers, pulled down the speakers, and put the tripods away. And at the same time, Bob was winding up and casing up and, you know, all the stuff with the mixer and the amp and all that. And you look around, and we're all done. We're packed. Everything's in the trailer, ready to go. Well, what was Duck doing the whole time? He was tracking down the client, trying to get, get us paid. And, you know, joshing around and giving business cards and, you know, working on that next gig, doing his division of labor. That is part of the bluegrass way of life. Another one that you will see in the bluegrass way of life, and it's true in so many other things, is that there is a mentality of trading, the trading mentality. Now, some people are firm believers in the mentality of you take, you take, you take, you take, and you give as little as possible. That is the taking mentality. And then there are some people that it's give, 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 give. I give, I give, I give. You know, <laughs> Mother Teresa of Bluegrass, you know, give it away. But the majority, that's, you know, the old bell curve. You got 5% on each end that are give, give, give. And the other end is take, take, take. But the bulk in the middle are into trading. And that is you give and you take. You give and you accept. That's what I believe in. And the cool thing about trading, whether it's you're operating your record table and you've got your CDs there for sale, you're not just giving them away. You didn't put $5,000 into that recording project just to go to gigs and hand them out. I mean, there are people that do that, the give, give people. Um, but generally speaking, you expect, you know, the 10 bucks back or the 15 or whatever it is. You know, it's a trade. And the cool thing about a trade is that both parties end up better off than before. Because you've got the CD that you're asking $10 for. And the person standing on the other side of the table has the $10, but he doesn't have the CD. And at the moment the exchange takes place, that the trade takes place, I hand you the CD, you hand me the 10 We both feel like we won. The, the customer, the fan, the client, feels like they got what they wanted. They wanted the CD more than they wanted the $10, so they're a winner. They got the CD, and they, they gave away the thing they didn't want anymore. They didn't want the $10 bill. They wanted that CD. They gained. The band guy, he handed over the CD and took the 10 He wanted the 10 more than he wanted the CD. See? You have two winners. It's a win-win situation when you have that trading mentality. And it's not just in transactions of physical product. It's also in your show and your, your attitude toward the audience, your attitude toward the client. Um, it's, it's sometimes easy to get a bad attitude. I've been guilty of it a couple of times. I will freely admit but if let's let's use this as a transaction. You got an audience full of people. Let's say at a bluegrass festival and there's 400 people sitting in lawn chairs out there. And it's your time and you go on stage. 
are you there? Are you, is, is the purpose of this transaction where you give a performance, what do you receive? Just the money? Is that all it is? Or is it the money and the applause and admiration and appreciation and enjoyment that the audience is feeling? That's your payment too, you know? So when you walk up there, you're trading. You're trading your talents at entertaining and producing music for the audience's willingness and talent at appreciating you, showing you love and, and clapping after your solos and things like that. In other words, you can be a, a good audience member just as much as you can be a good musician or performer. Both are doing their role and they're trading because a good performance makes the audience feel better. An appreciative audience makes the performer feel better. Everybody wins. It's win-win. It's trading. So just remember that every time you're sitting in an audience or every time you walk on stage. There's another thing that is uh, found throughout the bluegrass way of life, and that is a balance between work and fun, or we could say leisure. Nothing in life is all one or the other. All work makes John a dull boy. And everybody knows, you know, the worthless, shiftless playboy who only seeks leisure, pleasure, fun, you know. The bluegrass way of life is built, and so are all the other ways of life's ways of life that are valuable to humanity as a whole, they all have a balance between work and fun or work and leisure, work and pleasure. You're not going to pick that watermelon on that August day and cut that thing open and enjoy it if you didn't work for it. Now, you can work for it by digging that garden, planting those seeds, pulling those weeds, watering, tending. You can work for it that way. Or you can go to your cubicle and uh, make sales calls over the telephone or participate in Zoom meetings for that paycheck so that you can take some of that money and purchase a watermelon. Still requires work. I mean, you could steal your watermelons. <laughs> you, know, you could uh, go somewhere down around Cordell at a truck stop and sneak in at night and where they got a, a tractor trailer load. You could sneak up there and steal one. But you might get caught, you know. Anyway, there is a balance between work and fun, even at a bluegrass festival. I mean... You know, when you when you arrive at a bluegrass festival, let's say you're just going to hang out. And you're going to camp and you're going to hang out and pick and pick. You can't just pick, pick, pick. You also got to prepare, you know, check out the trailer, set up the tent the day before, make sure it's all good. And, you know, gas up the car and make sure you got propane and blah, blah and the food. And you, you got to do some work to make it all happen. And then when it's all over, certainly work involved then. You got to pack all that stuff up. You got to dump out the ice chest when you get home and hose it out and throw all them beer cans out. And, you know, there's work and fun. It ain't all fun and it ain't all work. It's a balance. All right. One more thing here that is found within the bluegrass way of life and that 
I feel like anything that is valuable, any anyone, any other kind of way of life uh, that is valuable to humanity, you will find a respect for elders and an, an encouragement for the young, to the young. Bluegrass is one of those fields of endeavor or ways of life where age is not a barrier. And if you encounter people as you're rambling around the bluegrass world, in the blue, you know, trying to find the bluegrass way of life and participate in it, when you see divisions, age-based divisions, I would kind of avoid those people because they don't understand. It's uh, from 8 to 80, you know. Geezers are as valuable as kids. You know, I've gone to some things sometimes, mostly like little jam sessions where it was like everybody here is between 50 and 70. And a kid comes through the room and it kind of gets a dirty look from like that kid might spill something or whatever. You know, that's not the bluegrass way. Come on. All the way from a baby to one foot in the grave, everybody's welcome. It's the bluegrass way. What else have I got? Oh, well, I mean, I've already talked about, you know, the importance of family and friends. Another thing is, um, and I say that I've talked about in other episodes. I don't need to beat this horse, horse to death. Uh, but there is another thing that I think um, is a big part of the bluegrass way, and that is um, nature. And the outdoors. I mean, so many bluegrass things happen outdoors. You know, the majority of the camping, uh, set aside my years as a Boy Scout, uh, but the majority of my camping experiences have been related to bluegrass. And that's probably true for a lot of people that are in bluegrass. I don't want to really want to go camping unless it's a bluegrass festival, and then I love camping, you know? But... There's a lot of um, a connection with the outdoors, even if it's just, you know, partially outdoors or, you know, I think it's a very good thing, you know. Another thing is that um, there's a bit of tribalism in it. And I'm one, I, I'm not one of these people that thinks tribalism should have a bad name because think about it, you could say it's bad, you know. Because if you get a bunch of people together that, you know, are all trying to do rotten stuff, yeah, that, that would be a bad tribe. But tribalism itself is not necessarily bad. When you're a participant in the bluegrass world, you're part of the bluegrass tribe. It's, it's, it's not a value judgment to say you're in a tribe, you know. There can be tribes that do good things and tribes that do bad things and sometimes do good things and sometimes do bad things and so on and so on. But you're part of the bluegrass tribe. And I find nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, when the guy comes strolling up to your jam session with his electric guitar and his little battery-powered amp and wants to jam with you, I think it's fully within your... Um, I think you sh it would be perfectly fine if you're, you're doing bluegrass... To say to the guy, you know, I mean, 
we could try this, but, uh, you know, really in bluegrass, we, you know, we're really kind of into the acoustic guitars, the thing, you know? And if, if you want to, if you want to do that, you can always do that, but you're going to upset a whole lot of people that don't think electric guitar really has any place in bluegrass music. Just like I'm sure a lot of metalheads would think a banjo has no place in that. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm walking down the center line here because I, I'm not saying you can't make that kind of music, and but it's just that if the tribe is into bluegrass, I think it's perfectly okay to let the activities of the tribe be bluegrass. You know, that's, I don't find anything wrong with that at all. Because if you don't, pretty soon, it's not bluegrass. It's just a, a wild, chaotic, anything-goes attitude, and then you don't have bluegrass anymore, you know? And I don't think there's anything wrong with uh, participating in a way of life that uh, promotes a tradition and form called bluegrass. And if you're into that, cool. Now, you know... Once in a while, something will, you know, come up. I, I think I talked one time about having a jam session one night with a uh, sax player. And we had a good time. <laughs> I didn't want the guy in the band, though, you know. I just didn't. Because I was into the bluegrass way, you know. Anyway, I think I've about talked myself around in circles enough here. and probably hacked off half of you. <laughs> Hopefully not. But, um... Anyway, just a quick thank you to all of you patrons over on patreon.com slash Bradley Laird. You know, I've seen some ups and downs in that, mostly downs here lately. And hey, I get that. You know, money is tight right now. I get it. But uh, I also appreciate whatever you do and uh, whatever you can do and have done or might do in the future, that sort of thing. Same goes for the, uh, the website. Uh, once again, uh, take advantage of those fabulous discounts that Jared talked about at the beginning of the show. You can go back and list that the first uh, 45 seconds. Again, if you need a reminder of that. Uh, but, you know, it does take money. We live in that money, money, money world. Which reminds me. I went to a Del McCurry show one time and we loaded up. I bought a... a a vinyl album and uh, we bought some like shirts and stickers and me and John just loading up, you know, and, uh, before I walked away, um, his wife, uh, handed me a CD and I was looking at it. She says, you can just take that. I'm like, thanks. Thanks. And it's a CD called Moneyland. And since I'm talking about money, I thought I would just go out with a just a little snippet because it does take money to keep the wheels in motion. That's just the world we live in. And so we'll just go out on a little bit of that. Y'all go buy that CD. Go buy, help, help old Dell out. <laughs> um, you guys pick up a copy of Moneyland. And I'll talk to you guys in the next episode. That's a pity to see when the land of the free turns out to be nothing but a free for all. You can buy a judge or a bribe or a thug or a bomb or a trading machine. You
can buy your way through in tune on to any ticket or TV screen. It's a money disease. It's a thing called greed. And it feeds on those who need the money most in money land. Oh, it ain't so funny if you ain't got the money in money land. Now, corporate crime, you just do a little time, pay a little fine, and then you're in the clear. Murdering robbery calls the snobbery doesn't mean a thing, it just falls on deaf Money is a thing we all sweat for, it's what some dreams are made of. But then there's those who want it all, and enough is never enough. It's a money disease, it's a thing called.